Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Uh, hello and welcome, everyone. Today I'm joined by uh, Sean Hannigan, who's the AMP's former Chief Investment Officer of the Multi Asset Group, um, who's now still on his 15 month sabbatical. Um, let's hear from uh, Sean. How are you today? Yeah, very good. Thanks, Alex. So I'm uh, I'm sitting here in Whistler in uh, British Columbia, Canada, uh, just getting ready actually to to recontinue our travels. Um, the national parks are now opening up around British Columbia, so my wife and I are going to pack our mountain bikes, a tent, and uh, hit the road and head up to, to Banff and Calgary and start to explore the, the Rockies. So, so how how far are you along on this journey? I know it sort of was a fifteen month journey that you that you wanted to. Yeah, so we 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 left. Uh, we flew into um, Santiago, April last year, and then started in Patagonia and spent nine months traveling up, backpacking through South America and Central America, um, and then arrived here in Whistler in December, middle of December, um, for to spend the ski season here. I got joined by my family and my children for a couple of weeks in early January. And then, of course, the, the, the virus hit and everything got shut down March 11 here. So we've basically been quarantined in Whistler. Um, you know, which is, which is not a bad place to be quarantined. I mean, there's... The outdoor activities around here are just unbelievable. The sort of the trails and the mountain bike riding and stuff. So it's it's not too bad, but it is. We are getting a bit of uh, Groundhog Day, you know. And I'm actually a bit uh, a bit jealous of people working because it just gives you something to to help fill the day. I'll probably I say that now, but probably if I was on the other side, people looking at what I'm doing and thinking, "You're crazy," you know. I'd much rather be doing what you're doing. So it's uh, I guess it's a bit the grass is always greener on the other side. Oh look, there's a, there's always an irony when um, you're working, you just can't wait to stop and, and have a break and uh, you know, try try to relax. And then when you're away, um, you start to get itchy, especially during these sort of market environments where a lot of things are happening. Do you, do you feel absolutely. that itch to get back into it? Yeah, absolutely. Look, and I sort of you know I I I don't know if there's any way I can help, um, but I, I just think you know I speak in some of my former colleagues, um, well my colleagues still at AMP Capital. You know, with everyone working from home, um, it's, it's it's made a bit more of a challenge. You know, I thought maybe I could I could dial into the odd meeting or just, but I, I think with how people are working at the moment, that's not that practical. Um, but I do, yeah, I, I feel you know, like the GFC is still relatively fresh in my mind, and just coping with all the challenges that created, and just you know, looking at the situation now, and you know, it's it's the, the crises are actually sometimes perversely the most interesting times you have in your career. And so, you know, as much as I'm, I, I'm empathetic for the, what my colleagues are going through, I'm also a little bit jealous. Do you, do you feel that, you know, being away from Australia also gives you a bit of a clearer head in, in sort of seeing seeing what's happening? Yeah, look, I sort of, uh, yes and no. I, I, I was quite um, disciplined when I was backpacking through South America just to completely switch off. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I had a good seven, eight months just not even thinking about work and that, and that was part of the reason I did this trip was just to, you know, just to just to step away and clear the head and spend some focus and time with my wife and just 
get back to doing something that we both really, really loved, um, loved doing, you know, and that's that sort of backpacking, traveling. Um, and that, you know, that, that in itself is quite hard work as well. It's interesting, you know, when, you, when you're backpacking, you're only planning out three days in advance. So you're always thinking what you're doing next and it's sort of, you're quite busy. Um, it's once I've arrived here in Whistler and we're not moving around, I've got a lot more time and that's when I'm starting to, you know, to get a little bit sort of um, itchy and starting to think more about what's happening back in Australia and, and reading the Fin Review as an example and reading sort of some more of the the, the media or the local industry um, papers, etc. And so I have been drawn back into it, um, particularly now with with what's going on around the liquidity issues uh, or li- liquidity issues. And just a, a you know, example with the, with the draw, taking money out of soup and the, and the challenges that's created for people. But, you know, look, I still think, bottom line, I think Australia, having the system that we do is a huge advantage. Once again, the Australian equity market, I think, has, in terms of the capital raising, has been one of the most active in the world. And when you have this very deep pool of domestic capital, it makes it far easier. So, you know, again, it's probably going to, it's going to give Australia sort of a huge advantage when it comes to, to managing this crisis. But from, from when, you, when you, you know, you're sitting away, you know, 10,000 miles away from, from Australia, you know, do, do you sort of get a little bit disheartened? Like you, you can you can talk about where, where the Australian super industry is, but do you feel a little bit disheartened because you're sort of outside the noise of that of the bubble of AFR and, and local media and, and what's happening in the local superannuation industry, but sort of more broadly in terms of, you know what superannuation has achieved to date. You know, are you are you feeling? You know, is there a clearer light to you? I guess in terms of how you review what's happened to date. Look, yeah, I, I think it's um, you know I I I, I, it, I think this ob- this obsession with peer rankings, uh, chasing performance, is 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 a real Achilles heel in our industry, um, and it just creates the wrong focus and it creates bad outcomes. You know, I think um, I've been quite horrified at the treatment of Sam Cecilia by some elements of the media. Um, you know, he, he in, in, in operating host plus like he did, uh, he, and we had some meetings um, to talk about stuff and, you know, Sam was quite um, comfortable with the strategy that he'd undertaken. You know, I mean, there was, there was critics of it in terms of classifying some assets as defensive assets. But, you know, given the profile of his membership, um, I don't think he was behaving necessarily in a way that um, deserves the reaction that he's had to date. You know, I just think it's, um, you know, and, and but I, I think that the industry is sort of forces, not forces that, but really encourages that behaviour because if, you know, if you're the best performing fund, um, you're lauded by the industry. Um, and it's all about being the better performing fund. So it, invariably people are going to be taking too much risk. And I think now is a classic situation where I, I'm really concerned about valuations in the market. And so if you were an investor that was purely focusing on what was delivering what members wanted, at the moment you'd be really focusing on capital preservation. But the problem with that is you run a real risk of if markets do continue to to rally, um, you start to drop down the performance tables and that creates all sorts of pressure. So I just think you know the industry... Um, needs to focus on what the objective is, and that's providing a predictable, steady income in retirement. 
it's not about maximizing capital value. And I, and you know, this whole focus on accumulation rather than retirement um, made sense when the industry was still in its infancy. And but now we're starting to get pretty mature. And I think there's no net growth in the accumulation phase across the industry. It's all in the retirement phase. And I don't think the industry has quite got where it needs to get in terms of providing that retirement income. You raise a lot, of, a lot of issues there. Maybe let's let's go back to to sort of host plus and and some of the issues that were were sort of raised in terms of how growth focused their their portfolio was, and there was concerns about particular assets being classified as yes. as you know gr- defensive, but were really growth and so forth, and, and sort of just sort of you know on the fence on on a number of decisions there. I guess yep. one of the biggest challenges for these funds, early access aside, is how do you manage to this cohort? You know, and and so for Sam's benefit, you know, he he had a you know uh, a median age that was quite low. It was you know allowed him the flexibility to think long term. Now, I guess my question to you is, if you're trying to manage that portfolio, yes, you can look at it from a thirty year horizon and say I've got the time. You know, aside from the government yep. interference, he's got a thirty-year horizon. But does that mean that he should still be fully invested in growth-style assets? You know, if you talk about getting to, um, you know, this retirement uh, stability of income, I guess one of the questions that keeps coming up to my to my mind is, you know, do they do they need to sort of take risk off the table and actually sort of realize where market valuations are? There's been a lot of research about you know, the current valuations in market and what does that mean for future returns? And so are we putting a lot of superannuation um, monies at risk because we sort of just think very, very long term, but are, are sort of missing the underlying problems in markets in terms of valuations and so yeah. forth? How, how do you balance that out you know, aside from yeah, even look, the peer risk issue? Yeah, look, I, I think um, I think there's too much... If, if you're a... a, 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 a a person looking forward to retirement. Um, I think there's too much focus on trying to achieve an outcome based on investment performance. Now, the other lever that you have, of course, is your contribution rate. Mm. And I think, you know, if so if you're running a fund and you're saying to the members, okay, I'm going I'm to try to deliver you inflation plus three over the long term, um, which is not a very aggressive return outcome, but probably today, if it's where we're starting today, anyone would take that outcome. But just to say, inflation, inflation plus three, if you want to retire on you know, X percent of your salary, you have to save 13, 14, 15, 16% of your income. So, you know, it's like driving from Melbourne to Sydney, the analogy I use is, you know, you know it's going to take you on average 10 hours, but so you leave at eight o'clock in the morning. You don't leave at ten o'clock in the morning and you know rent a four liter car and try to get there in a hurry because sure that might work, but you you'll be speeding. The chances are that you could uh, well you could get fined for going too fast or you could actually cause some damage. So I think the analogy is I think that there's too much about this trying to generate really high returns rather than saying okay let's just let's just get a return which is achievable and we're comfortable. Focus on that, and then put some more onus on contribution rates. Now, I know that's you know a lot of people don't can't afford to put fifteen percent of their salary uh, into 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 long term retirement. But my point being is, I just think this obsession about trying to chase performance results in undesirable outcomes. And you know, and I, and I think you you can look at the way people behave, but if that's how they're rewarded. Um, 
and it's yeah you know, I, I so I think people like if I was someone like host plus or whatever I, I just wouldn't participate in the um, in the surveys and I'd, I'd have a system about communicating it's all about effective communication I think again I've always had this view I think communicating is as important as investment performance um, particularly if you move to a more goal-based rather than peer relative or benchmark relative um, investment strategy Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it, it, it does. It does. And I, I think that is part of the problem where you've got this situation where the communications that are out there at the moment is all coming from the media. So the media is pushing with the tables, you know, the super rating tables and so forth. That's all driving this awareness to performance and performance being the only outcome. Uh, and yep. so the danger with that is that people then become anchored by those performance numbers and, and actually the funds take advantage of it because they see it as a way to, to generate more funds under management and they start putting on the side of a bus or on the roadway about how their number one fund for you know one, three or five or 10 years. Um, yep. So it's driving this just constant focus on, on a percentage number of returns despite us, you know, having a, an advertising at the bottom that says, you know, there's past performance is no guarantee for future performance. But the reality is people look at the numbers and they, they want to join these these organizations despite potentially you know, getting themselves into a lot of trouble because these funds take on too much risk for their situation or where they're at in life, you know, in terms of their age. So it's interesting, isn't it, though, if you you know, we talk about uh, – people talk about this mythical barbecue conversation where people compare their investment performance to their funds. Look, no one's ever come up to me at a barbecue and uh, asked about the performance of my superannuation fund. I, I, I don't think that happens. I think you're bang on. I think it's the media, and I think it's our own obsession within the industry. I think outside the industry, it's it's it, people aren't as active as we believe they are. Um, so I think we've created this problem for ourselves, to be honest. Um you know, and I, I it's, I, 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 if, if you could think of a fund as a defined benefit rather than defined contribution, defined benefit funds did not compare performance with each other. There were no peer tables of defined benefit funds. It was all about delivering on the promise to the member. And I think, you know, and I think Paul, um, Paul Costello, when he looked at the, the My Super legislation, he wanted more of a focus on, on that issue, you know, about, about the trustees making a, a philosophy or belief to the members and then delivering on that belief um, or that outcome rather than having this focus about doing better than everyone else. And it's just, you know, it, it's, it really does create more problems than it solves. And I think the other, the other issue is we always talk about member engagement. Um, and so the, the, the part about member engagement is often around these, these particular times um, and so when things are going well, no one really checks on their superannuation, but as soon as they start to hear market um, volatility, they start to check their balance and say, oh, it's gone down X percent and so forth. And so that's where this, I think, mindset for a lot of the, the actual members get really confused where they say, oh, hold on, is my fund actually doing what it sh- should be doing? Um, and so how, how, I guess the, the, the real challenge then is the communication part that you talk to in actually Absolutely. explaining to members... You know, five six percent steady return over thirty years is actually going to deliver you a very very good outcome. Um, yeah. Uh, as opposed to the sort of one year it's fifteen percent up, and next year it's down eight, and then it's back up three, and it's back down ten. Um, you know, it's the frequency of this, you know, just continual wins rather than these one large win and then a one you know big loss. Just the 
the geometric returns that come from these portfolios is better for just having this continual growth at a slower rate. Yep. Yeah, look, and it's been, um, I, I, you know, I, I, I think having a highly effective communication capability is really, really important. I, when, when AMP Capital is looking at moving to goals-based across a range of funds, goal-based investing, where you target an inflation plus outcome. I, I did a, a, a road trip, went and visited a half a dozen goal-based managers, predominantly in the UK, where that, that type of managing money had been, um, they were early pioneers in doing it. Now, I did a couple in the States as well. And, and to an organisation, they all stressed the importance of communication. And in many cases, it was storytelling. It was, we bought this infrastructure asset because we expect to deliver an inflation plus three outcome over the very long term, which is consistent with what we're trying to do for the fund, and it consists of like a toll road in the US or whatever. So it was, it was much, it, it was, you know, it was storytelling around the portfolio without necessarily just focus on the performance outcome. And, and, and they felt that was a better way to build engagement with the member, and it was, you know, it was pitched at a at a, at a very um, basic level that actually made it easy to understand. And and they, and, and and this importance of communication was was a real um, lesson that I came back with. And you know, I still I, I don't think that we were where we needed to be. I think there was there's a few organisations that do it very very well, and we certainly weren't one of them. But it was something that we acknowledged that we need to be far better at. And um, you know, and I, I, I'd, I'd say that if you were building a, a capability in your organisation to have a highly effective communication capability would be absolutely key. Does that also help, I guess, in terms of communication, there has been a bit of discussion around, you know, the role of super in supporting Australia um, and, and as being part of a yep. nation-building piece. Is that something that you would consider as being um, beneficial to the superannuation industry to keep people staying the course and being more engaged about where their money is going? And you, you, you mentioned a toll road. Um, is this one way yeah, absolutely. that could do it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, and I, I think there is a, um, you know, I, I, I think there is a benefit and, and a perceived benefit of that. You know, if you feel that your superannuation is going to creating a, an, a country that your children and grandchildren, you know, I think there is a lot of positives around that. But, it, um, and I, I, you know, the storytelling is that in, in terms of saying that, you know, we own this. When you're traveling on a toll road, it's like, you know, the superannuation fund invests in this. And even, you know, moving further beyond that and looking at some of the environmental issues, um, you know, and how your superannuation fund can be a, a, a force for good in terms of tackling some issues like climate change and, you know, environmental issues. You know, I think there again is, a, is something that can be very engaging and positive for the members. But, you know, what's really interesting is that we, um, AMP Capital has a, a, an ethical range, multi-asset diversified fund. Um, and, and when asked, most members would request an ethical option on the um, choice platform. But invariably, we only got flows into that fund when performance was good, you know, relative performance was good. Uh, so it, it's quite interesting. I mean, we say this, you know, in terms of the storytelling and the beliefs and stuff, but it's it's quite interesting. Flows are still dictated by performance, which is sort of goes goes against what I've been saying in some ways. But um, you know, I, I still think the, the the best way to for a trustee to consider is to have a belief and a set of objectives, communicate those to members, and measure yourself against how you deliver against those. 
and just try not to have a focus on comparing to how everyone else is doing because that's, you know, that's that's a distraction. It's, you know, when I was a consultant, we I used to engage with trustees and we'd, we'd talk about what the objectives of the fund were and invariably they'd have an inflation plus objective mm-hmm. and you do your strategic asset allocation, your risk budgeting around that, but then they'd have a secondary objective of outperforming the peer group. And as much as we try to fight against it, they were insistent to have both because they said it as a, as a you will not have a business, their belief was, you would not have a business if you didn't weren't generating above median performance. And I'm not sure that's the case. You know, is, is, there, a, is there also a potential issue because of the allowance of, of members to move their funds quite quickly? You know, we've got public offer now. Is, is that maybe part of the problem in terms of the funds being now more hyper aware about their performance and peer awareness because it is so easy to move move money from one fund to the next? Yeah, look, I, it's interesting. The stats around people moving is not that great. I mean, when you get a, a raw commission or, or, or an event like that, absolutely, that has an impact. But on the day-to-day, you know, normal market environment, you know, if you move from second quarter to third quarter, even fourth quarter over a 12-month period, I, I, you, there's very little, you know, the stats that I've seen, correlation between that and member, member movement. However, however, you know, this still is, it still is a, a daily unit-priced industry where members theoretically can move their money at a drop of a hat and or move it out of that option and put it into more defensive option. So liquidity management is important, and this is this is this is what I used to, this is what I discussed with Sam Cecilia about the, you know, defining a defensive asset, having a liquid asset as defensive. I just don't think uh, liquidity. I think to be defined as defensive, you have to have liquidity. You have to have daily liquidity. Otherwise, I don't think you can categorise it as defensive because, um, you know, if you if you had a a great office building with the Aussie government having a twenty year lease. That, you know, that in, in many ways, that is a very defensive asset. But what it doesn't have is liquidity. And I think with the industry being members can move in and out when they want, uh, you have to have a decent level of liquidity to manage that. Um, so I think that's just part of your investment constraints is providing that liquidity. And I'm not, you know, I, it's unfortunate that because I think that does stop funds um, investing in assets you know, like a, the, the industry funds, given the their member cohort, they have better liquidity provisions. They, they can take more liquidity risk than many of the retail funds. Um, but that does mean that you're, you're suboptimal in terms of being able to invest in many of these assets that uh, that we would like to invest in. You know, because I, I personally think that infrastructure is a perfect superannuation asset. Um, it's... In most cases, it's 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 long dated. It has a and, and, and traditional infrastructure has a inflation linked revenue stream. So you know it's 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 perfect. It's a, it's a matched asset for what, what what funds are looking for. But also importantly, the world needs to invest in infrastructure. I, I mean, the numbers are staggering in terms of you know I, I don't know if you've got a, you've got the uh, got a taxi to uh, a New York airport and you drive along those motorways. It's just unbelievable how run down they are. So, you know, US alone, it's trillions they've got to spend in infrastructure. So there seems to be, you know, there's a huge demand 
there's a huge supply need. Uh, yeah, so you, you'd think that, you know, I think most funds, if they could have 20 to 30% of their portfolio in infrastructure assets, that's a win-win. Um, the problem that you have, though, is, is the illiquidity and the bottleneck of matching demand with supply. So I got off the topic there a little bit. No, but but, okay, uh, but that but that ties but that ties back to I think some of the retirement challenge. You know, you, you you talked about sort of the no net growth in the accumulation space, which is sort of what, what's happening. A lot of these larger balances are rolling over to the retirement part of the conversation. And if the focus is you know uh, generating income in retirement, these are the assets that actually do that. So you know you need to be keep looking at what is the cash flow that's going to be spinning off from from the assets that you hold. Um, yep. and particularly in a world where you know, fixed interest is is you know not really struggling to provide the returns that you need unless you start taking more and more risk in, in credit, for example, here's an option where you can get a five percent maybe dividend from from infrastructure style assets that can then help to address that retirement income need. Um, yeah, look, I, yeah, absolutely, and I think that's that's a huge challenge you have today, right? I mean, if uh, you know, if you're a retiree wanting to live off the income from your capital, it's like, goodness, that's uh, suddenly got a whole lot more difficult because of the, you know, the sort of the, the dividends are not what they were. Um, your interest, your fixed income portfolio is generating very little compared to what's in the past. So you need to find sort of ideally lower risk income assets that can provide you a reliable revenue stream. And it's just creating a you know the opportunity there to match that demand with the assets. And I think the the for a lot of funds, that's a huge opportunity because you know a creating a portfolio that generates a stable income has has a whole combination of growth and income assets in it. And I think at times if income assets are way too expensive, you can because you're, you, you're not a taxpayer, you can be selling capital to pay a revenue stream, but you've got to, it's got to be managed in a portfolio. And to do that as an individual is pretty difficult, but a, a, a superannuation fund that has got scale and has got access to you know, these very large infrastructure assets um, and direct property and other sorts of assets that you can't access at a retail perspective does provide an advantage. And so I think, you know, I think superannuation funds can play a very large role here and uh, you know, I think uh, for SMSF funds to do it, it's going to be a real challenge. Um, and so I, I think, you know, historically how they've worked, it's been relatively easy for SMSFs to actually generate the income. I think that's going to be a lot more difficult going forward. And I think it's going to, it's going to work in the favour of, the, of the, the funds that have the scale and the expertise to manage these sometimes quite complex assets. It's it's interesting you say that because they, uh, you know there's you, these these large assets that you need to purchase. It it starts to then come back to the whole dilemma in the Australian market with the number of funds that are out there and this push for mergers. Uh, and and yep. so the the large funds, the Australian supers of the world, uh, and the CBUS and so forth, they're all keen to start buying these assets directly because it makes sense for their member base and so forth. But then the smaller funds are saying, well, hold on, we're we're creating. Um, portfolios that are much more targeted to our member cohort and we're delivering better innovation and so forth. But you know, if I listen to, to what you've just said there, it's like, well, unfortunately, some of these funds have to get much larger if they're going to be able to provide uh, this income in retirement, which is the, the key piece that, that people are looking for. Yeah, I think I think you, you, that's 
probably right in a general sense. I mean, there's also there's always, you know, um, unique. Uh, there are sort of specific opportunities that may be a bit different to that, but I think scale um, certainly is an advantage. Um, it, it, it just enables you to to access a much larger and deeper pool of opportunities. Plus, you have uh, a level of expertise that is hard to to match in a smaller fund. Um, you know, the smaller funds tend to have a more outsourced model. And I think that always that's always a, a bit of a challenge, um, but yeah, we got, yeah we got to be careful here. I mean, there's, these are general, you know, broad sweeping statements. I mean, there's always exceptions to prove the rule, but um, yeah, I, I think the other the other big one, of course, with the retirement is the annuity. You know, and that's I, I just you know you talk some of these bigger funds they're getting of the size now where you know they're becoming quite substantial financial organisations and talk about capital and, you know, and what's going to happen there. But I, I think, you know, annuities are just, given what's happening with mortality and where interest rates are, they're just so expensive. I mean, a lifetime annuity is is pretty impractical or, you know, unless you are really, really risk adverse. Um, you know, I think but you can build a, you know, what we thought about at AP Capital was just breaking your retirement into components. You've got your essentials bucket. You know, and you've got to have very low risk certain income to support that. Then you have your lifestyle bucket, which is the sort of the, you know, the nice to have. But if you can't, if you if, if the portfolio hasn't generated the returns that you need to do that, well, then you just defer it for a year. And then there's the sort of the endowment, which is a long term, you know, your inheritance and other things. And so if you start to break it down into that, you can start to manage it specifically, and you have a a portfolio that generates the income or the capital growth from each of those different components. So rather than having a single portfolio try and meet all three needs, you have this segmented approach that enables you to be more focused and um, to build a holistic portfolio that's going to that's sort of support those needs. And I think the bigger funds have a, you know, they they have the better economies of scale to actually to do that. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, going back to uh, beliefs, I, I think it's, you know, I think a lot of a lot of us, a lot of the, the funds out there, we lose their biggest risk is not losing members to other funds. We're losing them to SMSF, and uh, certainly if you have a substantial balance. But I think where the markets are today, I, I think it's I, I I see that that force diminishing, and I could be completely wrong. You know, like I'm not that close. Um, there's probably a lot of people in Australia that have a far clearer understanding of that of me, but just from you know, not seeing the woods for the trees sitting here in Worcester, all those a lot of trees around here. <laughs> um, you know, I just that that's my gut feel for how this is playing out. I think that's a great transition to to sort of the broader market environment because you know, yes, we talk about thirty year um, you know time horizon for for the average member, but there is a lot of other members that are you know, at retirement or, or or within ten years of of retirement, and if this does end up being a, a very deep recession or, or depression, there's going to be huge downward pressure on asset prices. Um, we, we seem to be really setting up the current market environment for another awakening. Um, I think we're, we're back up at, at January 1 prices for S&P 500. Um, and so there's a really a lot of confusion from the asset owners that I've been speaking to um, in the last couple of weeks as we prepare for our upcoming Fiduciary Investing Symposium 
And so what I'm, what I'm worried about is that we keep telling people, stay the course, stay the course. And, you know, a, a number of the asset owners as well are, are advising members, you know, this is a long-term investment and so forth. But if we end up being you know, down another 30 or 40% because we go through a really deep, deep uh, recession or depression style environment, yeah, you know, yep. I'm, I'm concerned that you know, people are being set up for failure and then trust in the system starts to fall apart. Completely. And look, you know, and I absolutely agree with you. I'm looking at asset prices now and just thinking, this is crazy. I just think it's almost, it's at that point where, the you know, the more the bad, the worse the news, the more the markets like it because they think there's going to be monetary and fiscal support. Um, but, I, yeah, it's just... You know, I, my 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 sort of instinct is to go very very defensive. Um, and but the problem that you have, Alex, is that funds can't. You know, if you're a balanced fund, you have to have between sixty and eighty percent of growth assets, and that's the system that we've created. And we think that's that's somehow a way of managing risk, um, but that's not. It's actually making the system more risky because. You know, this in my career, there's been there's been three times, ninety eight, two thousand one, two thousand eight, where you know you, you felt you should be taking risk off the table, but you know you just this you have this mandated that if you're going to balance fund, you have to have between sixty and eighty percent, otherwise you're breaching your PDS. And it just that just seems crazy. And I think so. But members are sort of you talk to members and then they think we're being paid to actually if we don't think we've been rewarded for risk, don't take risk. You know, and they can't understand why they suddenly get a minus twenty percent return in their superannuation fund. So I think there is, but I, I I agree completely with you. I just think there is a bit of a disconnect at the moment where prices are, and what the economic environment is. It's just it doesn't. I I, I can't understand it, and I just worry that it's um, it's it's getting it way way ahead of itself. And so for someone that's trying to generate an inflation plus three and inflation plus four. That's just where we're starting today. That's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult. So I, you know, <laughs> I said about at the start, how I was a bit jealous of uh, you know my colleagues that are sort of working hard at this. In some ways, that's 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 the challenge that I'm glad I'm not having to face because I think it's a very very difficult one. Oh, look, it's a it's it's a weird time, and and um, you know there there are the continual gold bogs out there, and and the people that complain about the total financial system failing, and and the need to add Bitcoin to your portfolio. I've never seen yeah. so many references to both those assets, if you want to call them, you know, asset classes as such, um, of of late. Uh, you know, and people, I think, a lot smarter than me, sort of starting to to really be quite worried about just the broader system. The whole financial system that we invest in. Yeah, I, I, yeah, absolutely. I was actually funny you say that because I was actually thinking about Bitcoin yesterday for the first time. Six months ago, or no, probably a year ago, when it had that big rally. You know, we were talking about it, and I, I just said, "There's no way I'd ever buy Bitcoin because I can't put a value on it." You know, is it worth eight thousand or ten thousand, twelve thousand? <laughs> it's only worth what someone else will pay. You know, and that just as a as a value based investor, that for me is just a philosophical hurdle that I can't overcome. But I'm looking at it now just thinking, I, yeah, with the amount of money printing going on, uh, the printing press is running overtime virtually everywhere. Uh, that's got to be debasing currencies. Um, and so, you know, if, if, if the fiat system does collapse, it's like it makes gold and Bitcoin, et cetera, look quite interesting. But look, for me as well, it's, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, I, I, I worry during the, 
sort of post-GFC with ultra-low interest rates and the quantitative easing and how the world seemed to be getting, as soon as there was any risk, uh, the, the, the central banks would jump to, to stabilise things. And it just I think we need risk and we need people to be punished for taking excessive risk. I know that's somewhat Darwinian, but I think that's how the system operates. And, you know, we didn't get to where we needed. Rates did not normalise post the GFC. So monetary policy was still really um, quite expansionary throughout the, that whole 10-year period. And now we've had another crisis and monetary policy has almost run its course in many ways. And so appropriately, the fiscal pumps have been turned on. And that's all well and good if you're a country like Australia or New Zealand that has very manageable government debt. But a lot of the world, uh, you know, are in the sort of the 80s, 90s, or in excess of 100 as debt as a percentage of GDP. And people almost become a bit sanguine about it and think, oh, it's not really a problem. And, and you know, we can manage with debt level that's high because interest rates are so low. But, I, you know, I think if, uh, if you've emptied out the, 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 the ammunition on the monetary policy and now you're sort of emptying the bank on the fiscal policy, um, where do you go next? So it's, we'll probably get through this crisis, I think, with the amount of fiscal stimulus and stuff happening. I think, you know, in two or three years we'll be, we'll be back on, um, on stable ground again, but with very little options left when the next crisis strikes, and it will strike again. You know, so I might be getting ahead of myself worrying about the next crisis when we're in the heart of this one. But, you know, for me, that's – I just think, you know, look, the, the, the Fed buying sub-investment grade corporate bonds, you know, it's just it's, – it's incredible. You know, I sort of – I can understand they, 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 they're trying to stop the market dislocating. But it's, it's just for me, it just, it's just – it's that's making me very, very nervous. I think there's something – it's unprecedented. And I think there's going to be consequences for that. And I, I think we need to have more companies going bust. I, look, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a very, very difficult conversation because of the the corona. The, the virus is not a economic impact. It's a it's a it's a one off, and no one can really expect this and the, the the massive impact it's had. But I think for many companies, the way I look at it, you know, if companies are operating and they go out of business after one month of no revenue, I think the world has to reassess risk and just be far more prudent in how we manage for it, you know, and I think that's hopefully going to be a lesson coming out of this, um, which is going to mean a much, much slower recovery because if, if consumers are going to be saving and companies are going to be saving, building up, you know, balances, it's there's going to be less investment, less consumption, so it's mean it's going to be a very, very slow recovery, which impacts negatively on returns. Oh, look, I think I think that whole issue about moral hazard is, is a is a huge one, and it's even sort of been raised in the local media about the zombie companies being propped up by by the JobKeeper scheme of late. Um, yeah, and you know the the further interest rates go lower and lower, yeah, we, we keep propping up businesses that are really not an efficient allocation of, of capital. Uh, Completely, and, so- and and they and they undermine the more efficient, well managed businesses, right? Because they're not, you know, that, that, that it's not getting rid of the weakest competitors. Oh, I, I, well, it's actually even worse in, in my in my thinking of, of late, where where you've got the Federal Reserve supporting these large scale um, bond issuers that are sub investment grade, so they're getting help. But the people that actually employ, you know, the, the largest number or the largest percentage of people in the economy are a lot of these small businesses, and they get no help. Um, yeah, they can't. Uh, they can't completely. issue bonds and and uh, go yeah. to market and get their bonds supported by by a central bank. It just doesn't exist. It, 
actually one of the benefits of being here in Whistler is uh, I'm watching the PBS American News mm -hmm. and just watching what's happening in America. Um, that, you know, I look back at Australia and New Zealand, my home, and just think what amazing countries, how they've coped with this crisis. You know, it's been unity. I mean, there's been pockets of disquiet, but I look what's happening in America, and it is just horrifying. It's, it's it, you know, the country is tearing itself apart. It's just incredible, and it's just, I think um, there's a lot to be said for the societies that New Zealand and Australia have created, um, you know, which is outside the scope of this conversation. But, you know, I'm looking, I'm, I'm, that's why I miss most about being in Australia and New Zealand, just how people are together on this, you know. All right, Sean, I think that's a, probably a great place to leave it and we're happy to continue the conversation. Uh, there's, there's a lot more we can we can talk about, but for today I think that's a, a perfect uh, place to, to rest it. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.